My name is JJ. I'm the pastor of families here at the Franklin campus. Um, it's a holiday, so you have me. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, it is uh, truly a joy and a privilege. I, I, I love, I have loved diving into this message and this passage today because the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, usually we can read this with just a passing and go, oh, this is just about the Lord's table. This is really just about the Lord's supper. He's going to read this and we're going to have some time as we celebrate communion and the Lord's supper together. But there's so much that's deeper and so much that's richer in this passage that I want to dive into. Last month, uh, my wife and I had the privilege of being in Waco, Texas for my daughter's graduation from Baylor. Um, we threw this huge party with all five of the girls that had kind of lived together during those four years and had the house together and Kelsey and her four roommates. And it was the five girls, it was her families, boyfriends, fiancés, friends, relatives, grandparents, and uh, we just had this huge, huge meal, this huge festivity. And I, in fact, I think I have a picture of it uh, that we're showing you. Yeah, there we are. Uh, the Joneses are a little diminutive, so we're, we got stuck way in the back. You got to kind of squint to see us. But there was, like, there was, there was a ton of people there uh, celebrating the accomplishments of all five of these girls. Now, what you can't tell from this picture and what you don't know is that even just a couple of weeks up until graduation, my daughter had this crisis of faith, this crisis of trust. Uh, many college students do because, A, they, they don't know if they have a job yet. Some of her roommates still do not have jobs. Many, many of them are teachers, and uh, the, the areas they want to teach in in Texas is one of the best places to teach, and they, they just can't find jobs. There's just none to be had because it's such a good place. Um, some of them are in grad school, including Kelsey. Uh, leading up to the time of, of graduation, even just a, you know several days before, she did not know whether she was going to be accepted into grad school or not. So maybe I'm not in school. Maybe I don't have a job. I, I don't really know what's going on. And Lord, I don't... I mean, she was really struggling with this. We were struggling in a way with it as well. Um, and this is common for college kids. A lot, of, a lot of our kids, those of us that have kids in college, those of us that have kids that have graduated, uh, it's a struggle sometimes to find a job. There's, there's just not a lot going around like there used to be, especially if they're in a specialized field. Uh, Kelsey was struggling with this. Now, we did find out before graduation she did make it into grad school. She did get the, the school of choice that she wanted. Not everything panned out the way that she wanted to. She didn't really get the, the, the teacher assignment she wanted to be a GA to, but, uh, but she still saw God's faithfulness. And that's a message that we have really tried to reiterate to our kids as they've grown up, that we can trust God because he's faithful. We've seen God provide for our family in so many ways over the years in ministry and over the years as our kids have grown up. And as our kids have gotten older, we've been very careful to look back and talk about those things and point back to those things and say, because we can trust God and we've seen him show up back here, we can trust him for our future. And you know, honey, he's got you. We kept telling her that. Kind of hard to see in the moment of crisis, isn't it? But it wound up being a huge celebration for all these girls. And what, you know, you know my favorite part of the celebration was? It wasn't that I got to have some really good Tex-Mex finally. It's been a while for me. I mean, chew, we have Chewies here, but it's not like Chewies in Texas, right? Because, you know, it's just, it's just not the same. Uh, there's a lot of different menu items they have and stuff. So we, we had this big spread from Chewies and from other places, and, and that, that was really good. But you know what my favorite part of the, of the meal was? 
It was, it was listening to all these stories, all these memories, the celebration that we, as people spoke into the lives of Kelsey and Haley and Becca and Alex and Olivia. And, and so we, we really, really wanted to focus on that and have this significant time for them. We looked back at God's faithfulness for each of the girls as family and friends and celebrated that. It was a significant meal that marked a significant moment for these girls. And N.T. Wright says just that, that significant moments are marked by significant meals. Passover is the pinnacle of significant celebrations in the life of the children of Israel. It marks the most significant event in their history, and on this night, Jesus would add even greater significance to the meaning of it before the night was over. Passover entails looking back to God's faithfulness, his deliverance from slavery and from Egypt, and his uh, faithfulness as he led Israel through the wilderness and established them as his children and as his nation, knowing they could trust him with the future. Now, the disciples, unbeknownst to them, on this night would be entering into some of the darkest few hours that they would have ever experienced. And they will experience before the night's over a crisis of trust to the point that all will scatter before Jesus is on the cross and he'll be utterly alone. I think it's safe to say that every one of us in this room at one time or another has been there. We've experienced a crisis of faith. We've experienced a crisis of trust. Many of us may be going through that now. We, my family was not there or was there not too long ago in our life wondering just what was God doing and when was he going to show up and where were we going to even wind up being able to serve him? As we move into the text toward the last hours of Christ's life, it appears that everything is falling apart and he's going to drop some heavy, heavy news. He's going to drop a bomb on him at what is supposed to be the party of all parties for the Jewish people. But through the text, we'll see that Jesus is in complete, utter control. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's sovereign and he is in authority over each of these three sections that we'll walk through as we, as we break down this passage. So let's begin. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn, if you haven't, to Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that you can pull from the, one of the seats in front of you. Feel free to use that. And we're going to see Jesus is sovereign and he's in control as they prepare the Passover meal and the arrangements, even in the middle of the announcement of his betrayal. And he's in utter control as he begins to institute something new, the start of something new. For those of you that are high school musical fans, you will appreciate that. So let's dive into the text. Verse 12, on the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and there you will meet a man man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared 
the Passover meal. Now we can assume from the passage last week that Jesus and the disciples were still in Bethany. But it is the first day of unleavened bread, probably around Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, Nisan 14 or 15. And remember, the Jewish day starts at dusk uh, as opposed to uh, midnight when we started in the Western world. It goes from dusk to dusk. Uh, But the Feast of Unleavened Bread starting around Nisan 14 or 15 and Passover marks the beginning of this seven days of festivity. And it's something they look forward to every year. I mean, it's, it's a big thing. We have the 4th of July coming up, but it pales in comparison to what this means for the nation of Israel. Seven days of festivities. You had to observe it in Jerusalem. You couldn't observe it away from the city of Jerusalem. So at this time, tens of thousands, some scholars say maybe even hundreds of thousands of people are converging on the city. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what this is like? In Jesus' day, Jerusalem was the size of about a square mile. A square mile. Tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands converging on this one area for this big party, this big significant meal and, and, and several days of festivity. It makes CMA Fest look like a neighborhood pool party. So with this kind of crown, or this kind of crowd, you... You have to plan in advance. You can't just go and say, oh, I'm going to find a Holiday Inn. I'm going to find a Hampton Inn and find a hotel room. Thus the big ask that the disciples had. Where do you want us to go to prepare the meal? People are already beginning to descend on Jerusalem. The slaughter of the Passover meal and the lambs have begun to take place as they make ready and prepare for the meal. All across the city, the nation will be celebrating. So he sends two of his disciples. The parallel passage in Luke 22 says, tells us that we know it's Peter and John. And he sends two of them into the city and gives them specific instructions. Now, now this, this is unique to Mark. This passage parallels a passage from a few weeks ago in Mark 11 when he sends the disciples back into the city to find a colt uh, that has never been ridden for him to ride into the city on for the triumphal entry. A lot of similarities. You will go, go into the city, you will find a colt that no one has ridden, tied as you go into the city. Go into the city, you will meet a man carrying a jar of water. There's this commissioning of two disciples for a certain task. There's a precise knowledge of what they will encounter. And then there is the exact response to be given to the proper party. In this case, it's the master of the house. It says the teacher is, is ready to have the Passover meal. Now, he says you'll find a man carrying a water jar. This is unique because men did not carry water jars in those days. If men carried water, they carried a a skin, an animal skin, a bladder, if you will. Think like a camel pack almost, like you would have water in if you're a, a runner or a hiker. Women carried them in jars. Many times on their head, it would, it would mark, uh, you know, the, the, the difference of the roles there in first century Palestine. So it would be something that would be unique for them to see a man carrying a water jar. And so they see this, and that's the sign to them that this is the guy to follow. Maybe it's a servant, maybe it's a member of the household, maybe it's the master himself. We don't know, but we go into, they were to go into that house and talk to the master of the house who evidently knew Jesus or knew the teacher was looking for a room. He says, where is my guest room? The teacher may eat Passover with my disciples. Now, usually Passover meal was observed with your family. But tonight, the disciples were going to act as a family group. It was a special night that Jesus wanted uninterrupted to celebrate with 
his disciples, usually the head of the home, was the one who made the preparations, was the one who governed the events of the night, the telling of the story of the Exodus and all the elements of the table. And Jesus, it's clear from these passages and others in the gospel that he was acting as the head of the home or the host. But tonight, they would act as a family group. I believe that this is a picture of this new order of relationship that Jesus establishes with those who are his, those that follow him. Mark 3, if you remember, way back when we first started our series, when Jesus' family comes and they say, or, and, and people come to him, some followers come to him and say, your family's outside looking for you. And he says, who is my family? These that do the will of God, they're my family. They're my mother. They're my brother. Those that are doing the will of God. He is establishing this new order. He wants to celebrate with this family for a specific purpose tonight as they celebrate Passover. They find a large upper room ready and furnished. It's a big spread ready for a large party, which was indicative of Passover. Now, in all these things, the questions come, was this pre-planned? Was it prophetic? Was it both? Was it Jesus whipping out a little supernatural knowledge? or foreknowledge, I I believe it was all of the above. I believe it was both. Certainly, he has some supernatural, he's God, he had some supernatural foresight into the events of the evening, but remember, he was also a wanted man by this time. And if I was a wanted man, I would want to make sure there was nothing that would interrupt this most important meal with the ones that I hold dearest, with the ones that I wanted to spend my last night with. So there could also be some advance work done too. Nevertheless, the bottom line here is that Jesus was in control. He was sovereign the whole time. There's a lot of scholars going back and forth on contradictions with this, but there really is no contradiction here because Jesus is the God man. He can choose to work in natural ways. He can choose to work in supernatural ways. Both alike, according to his will and his sovereign plan. So they begin to prepare Passover. Passover was a three to six hour meal that was, uh, that usually, it couldn't begin till after sunset and usually was over by midnight. Let's continue reading. Next section, the betrayal, 17. When it was evening, he came with the 12 and they were reclining at the table and eating. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, it's a very somber time when Jesus says, verily, truly, Amen, I I say to you, one of you will betray me, even one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one who dips in the bowl with me, one of the 12, for the son of man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good, never, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So it's evening, it's well into the night, well into the meal, and they're reclining. Passover was eating in this posi- eating in this position. In Passover meal, you reclined, you didn't just sit. Reclining, free people reclined. It was a significant mark of, of the freedom and the, the, uh, the release and the rescue of God on behalf of the children of Israel. So they're reclining, they're eating in this position, and Jesus drops the bomb. Guys, listen. Verily, truly, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me, even one who is eating with me. It says in verse 18 and in verse 20, even one of the 12, one who dips in the bowl with me. This is not necessarily to identify the betrayer, but 
the uh, nearness to Jesus of the betrayer. It's a present participle, middle voice. Even, it's better translated, even the one who he himself is dipping with me. Implies perhaps even dipping in the same dish of the bitter herbs are are the, the sop that Jesus was dipping in. The proximity, very close. Judas was very close in proximity at this time to Jesus, maybe even sharing the same bowl that he was sharing. This reference, even one who is eating with me, is, this, is a reference to Psalm 41, uh, 19. When David is talking uh, about um, his, 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 kind of his war counsel, a guy named uh, Hiptophel, Ahithophel, who conspired, co-conspired with Absalom, his son, to kill David. I love the way the voice translates this verse, Psalms 41, 9. Even my best friend, my confidant, who has eaten my bread, will stab me in the back. Ahithophel was David's war strategist. He was kind of his defense secretary. He co-conspired with Absalom to kill David. But he was one who was most trusted by David. He had even eaten at the f- table in fellowship with David. To fellowship at the table was a picture of the most intimate of friendships in the Eastern mind. And to eat in fellowship with a friend at the, at the table and betray him was a height of treachery. It was almost, it was beyond incredulous. It was abhorrent. And the disciples, this was not lost on the disciples. They begin to be grieved, it says, and they begin to ask one by one, geez, is it me? I mean, can, you can imagine, most, a lot of us have, have felt what Jesus was feeling at the time. You ever been betrayed by someone? You ever felt like you've been stabbed in the back? If you're in high school or middle school, you probably feel that way every day. It happens. Kelsey went through that. But when you really experience the betrayal of a friend, it grieves. And, and, and if you're being told that you might be the one that would bring this grief, it grieves you as well, one by one. And it says each one of them, one by one, even Judas, it implies, comes to him and asks, is it me? We know in John, in his account, we go deeper into Jesus' conversation with Judas. We don't have time to go into that. But it's clear, even though Jesus knew the identity of his, his betrayer, that his disciples didn't. So they begin to ask him this. And what I believe is another uniqueness to Mark here is the contrast he draws between Judas and the woman who anointed Jesus in the passage that we read last week. Refer back to uh, 14 verse 9 when Jesus says truly I say to you wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world what this woman has done today will be spoken of in memory of her one is famous for her extravagant waste the other is infamous for his treacherous betrayal one commentator contrasts them in this way she was a woman of no standing and he was a man even one of the disciples one of the apostles in this prestigious relationship with Jesus. She gave what she could to Jesus. He took what he could get from Jesus. She blessed and loved her Lord. He betrayed and used his Lord. She did a beautiful thing. He did a terrible thing. She served him as her savior. He he sold him like a slave. She was notable for her devotion and he was notorious for his betrayal. Don't miss this. This is This is unique to Mark. He is pointing out a clear, obvious contrast 
of the type and the amount and the extravagance or lack of of devotion. And again, it begs the question Eric posed to us last week. What are we spending our life on? What are we rather wasting our life on? And again, in all this, Jesus shows that he's in control. He is in control. Authority. He's not a helpless victim of someone who's taken advantage of him here. It's not a surprise. His death was according to God's plan, not just because of a betrayer's action. Again, he is in control. He is sovereign. And then we come to the last section that, that Mark takes us through here, the institution of the Lord's Supper. While they were eating, verse 22, he took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, take it. And when he given, he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them also and said, drink from, and they drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, another truly, another serious moment, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, as custom in Passover, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now before the meal was eaten in Jewish homes, the head of the home or the host explained this meeting regarding Israel's rescue from slavery. And as the host, Jesus begins to, he most likely did this, most likely through the meal, took them through all this, but he, he did this in preparation to begin to help his disciples have a new understanding of the bread and the wine. Instead of linking the bread and wine to the exodus and the liberation of Israel, he said new words which linked them to a greater exodus liberation from sin. And he begins to change things. Three times during the meal, bread would be broken. This was one of them. And four times, a cup of wine would be drank. This all happened probably towards the end of the meal. The four cups represented the four promises of God to the children of Israel that he gave Moses in Exodus 6. So it says he broke the bread, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. Now, this doesn't mean to take it literally and doesn't mean it actually became Christ's body or was his flesh. That would be abhorrent to Jews. That would be inconceivable to, to enter into cannibalism, but it's symbolic rather. It's a sacrificial giving of himself. In, in the Exodus meal, the bread is explained as the suffering of our affliction. It's a picture of the, the, the broken bread as the suffering of our affliction, the uh, affliction, the bread of our affliction, the suffering of our people. Jesus broke it. He said, this is my body. This bread is my broken body, the, my body of affliction given for you. And then he takes the cup, it says, and he gives thanks. This is a Greek word, eucharistio, where we get our word eucharist. It just simply means give thanks he gave to them and they drank. He said, this is my blood of the covenant given for, uper, on behalf of, in the stead of many. Just as God's covenant with Israel was initiated by him, a blood covenant, so the new covenant Jesus is instituting is likewise determined by his authority and initiated by him alone on our behalf. He was doing something new. He was bringing new significance. This was not lost on the disciples. The third cup, it was, uh, we believe that this was the third cup that Jesus took and blessed. It was the cup of redemption or thanksgiving. And then the fourth cup is the cup he refused to take, the cup of consummation. I will not drink it again until I'm with you and drink it new in the kingdom of God. Once again, Jesus is master over the entire situation. He's master 
over what is going on. He's taking something that is familiar and he's adding new significance to it. Tonight, this is fulfilled not centuries ago when God rescued, but now as he's going to rescue mankind through me, it's fulfilled in me. And it says they sung a hymn, the Hallel, five psalms, Psalms 113 through 118 were sung or chanted antiphonally in connection with the Passover, the first two before the meal, the remaining four after it, when it concluded. Most likely, this was Psalms from Psalm 118. And I can imagine as they were singing and heading to Gethsemane, some of the words ring very deep and true for Jesus. Psalm 118:17, I shall not die but live to declare the works of the Lord. Psalm 22 through 24, the stone that has been rejected has become the chief cornerstone. These words on his lips as he rose and began to head to Gethsemane. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this mean? If, can I trust that Jesus is in control and has authority now as he did then? If he, has, if he is in control and he has authority over the events of the text that we just read today, then surely he not only knows and cares about what is going on in my life, but he also has authority and control over what goes on in my life as well. The answer is a resounding yes. 1906, Albert Schweitzer wrote his groundbreaking book, The Quest for Historical Jesus. According to Schweitzer, Jesus was this first century kind of tragic hero that kind of saw himself as a self-appointed Messiah and got caught up in these events that actually wound up getting beyond his control. He mistook his role and he died for it when things got out of hand. But if we give a fair and honest reading of the Gospels, this is not what we see. Here in our text today, Mark, we see a Savior that's in total control, even to the last detail, even to the last minutia. There's not a hint of worry or desperation. He's not wringing his hands going, oh, one of my closest friends is going to betray me, stab me in the back. There's no fear, no anger, no futility that we see on his part. He doesn't cower or retreat when plots are hatched against him. Throughout the whole gospel and all the gospels, he displays a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course that he has freely chosen that is in alignment with God's divine will and God's divine plan. And thank God he did. In the midst of everything seemingly falling apart, are beginning to fall apart. We see that he displays authority in two distinct areas in the disciples' life. The first area that we see Jesus' authority is that he has authority over their circumstances. From the arrangement of the meal to the announcement of the betrayal to the new symbols of God's faithfulness during that meal, he is in utter and complete control. He knows exactly what's going on. He has control over their circumstances, whether they recognize it or not. Many times they do throughout the Gospels. Many times they don't. But he is Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control and he has authority over their circumstances. Second area that we see he has authority over, and I love this, he has authority over their identity. We see that he has authority over circumstances in the first, 
the first, the first two instances in this passage over the preparation of the meal and over the announcement of betrayal. We see that he has authority over their identity as he institutes the newness of the Lord's, Sup- of the Lord's Supper because they're moving from rescued children of Israel to rescued children of God. They're moving from a corporate identity as a nation, as a people, to an intimate identity as a beloved and adopted children of God. Their identity before was tied to their religion, to their nationality, to their forefathers. Their identity now is tied to a relationship. That's true for me and you as well. So what does this mean? He has control over our circumstances. He has control over our identity. I believe it applies to our area in two ways. First of all, because Jesus has control, because he has authority over my circumstances, I can trust. I can trust him. Let's talk about trust for a minute. All of us have trust issues, don't we? If you haven't experienced that yet, you will. Our daughter, many of you that have kids that have graduated from college have experienced crises of trust. Many of us are experiencing crises of trust even now. Some of us are in hard, hard places. We're in deep, deep hurt. We're experiencing deafening uncertainty, our silence. Maybe it comes in the, the loss of a job or the lack of a job. Maybe the loss of a loved one. Maybe the loss of a relationship. One of the darkest times that my wife and I went through was the loss of one of our, 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 our deepest, best relationship that we had in Houston and utterly felt alone, even in the midst of a large church. Many times felt like it was just us and God. Sometimes felt like God wasn't even there. Maybe it's finances and struggles and, and, and places where we can't see God showing up or, or even uh, moving on our behalf. Maybe we're not hearing anything from God or seeing any movement on our behalf. Maybe it's unanswered prayers. Maybe we can't hear anything from God. Maybe we don't even know if he's even there anymore. We're, in any of our circumstances, uh, a hope in the circumstances I deal with that I can come to the place that Job comes where say, even if he slays me, yet I will trust and I will hope in him. Because God has been faithful in the past. We've seen it in our own lives and we point our kids back to that. Jesus was pointing back to God's faithfulness to the Passover and saying, he's gonna be faithful now. And when we come to the table We look back at his faithfulness on the cross and look forward to the time that we will celebrate and share the table with him face to face. Because he's in control over my circumstances, I can trust because he is moving on our behalf, whether I can see it or not. Maybe not in the way we desire, maybe not in the time we desire or the way we prefer. We may not even see it or understand it until eternity. But he is in control. He has authority. He is Lord over my circumstances, and I can and I will trust even when I don't see it or feel it or taste it. The second point of application is this, because Jesus has control 
or authority over my identity, I can worship. When Jesus instituted the new symbolism in the Lord's Supper, he was reminding the disciples of God's faithfulness and his rescue in the past. But he was setting a new precedent for God's faithfulness. His very sacrifice and our rescue on the cross. Scripture says that as they concluded, as was custom, they sang a hymn. They worshiped. We're going to worship today as well. Because God has been faithful in the past, I will worship him because I know the one who holds the future. I will worship him because I know the one who is preparing a new table for us as his family to experience with him together one day. Despite my circumstances, no matter what my circumstances says, my identity is in Christ. And one day, I will worship and I will take the bread and the wine with him and drink anew in shalom, in wholeness, in peace, redeemed and restored and renewed as things were meant to be. I'm going to ask our servers who are serving the Lord's table to come, go ahead and come forward as we prepare this morning and take their places. So as we end this morning, we are going to be able to worship. We are going to come to the table. Coming to the table is an act of worship as we remember and proclaim, Paul says, his death until he comes. We look back to his faithfulness as our sacrifice on the cross. And we can trust that one day we'll be together with him and with each other face to face as we come to the table anew. And just like that big soiree, the big shindig we had with Kelsey and, and her roommates, we had a community that came around them and celebrated together. We come to the table as a community, as a family as a beloved, adopted, and redeemed children of God, despite our circumstances, because of who we are in Christ. We come to the table and we worship today because we can trust him and because of what he's done. There are three areas with servers here tonight or today, two up front, one in the back. As you come to take the elements I'm going to ask that you please enter through the middle aisle and go forward or backwards. You can come to either side. Our servers will serve you the bread. Take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice and, and take it. And they will minister to you as, as you do that. Dip it in the cup as you take it and as you do so. And then you can make your way back to your seat as you come down the front and you take the elements. If you would use the far outside two aisles to go back to your seats, that would just help traffic flow. I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. As you come to the table this morning, I want, you to, I want you to think about what is it that I can relinquish control over? My desire for control. What is it today that I can release anxiety over, fear, worry, what I can control and give to Jesus and be free to fully trust despite my circumstances.
Things may be going great. I don't know, but despite that, we still can come and trust because of what he's done and who he is and who we are in him. Would you pray with me? Father, many times we look at our circumstances. Many times we worry. We, 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 we let our control become an idol that we struggle with. And we fail to remember, even in the best of times, that, that you are sovereign. You have the authority. You are Lord over our lives. You're Lord over our circumstances. As we come to the table today, Lord, help us to remember, help us to be encouraged as we see, even though the disciples knew, didn't even know what was going to be going, happening in the, the next few hours, yet you still established a precedent for them to trust you as you worshiped and as you came to the table. Lord, help us to relinquish control. Help us to relinquish worry. Help us to relinquish fear, hurt, all these things that keep us from truly living into our identity as your beloved and that keep us from truly worshiping as we come to the table. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.